She says, call your, I want you to know something. I would never leave you. And I was like, well, of course not, mommy. I know that. And she goes, if I ever do, I want you to know that your father probably had me killed. Next thing I know, it's, I'm startled awake by hearing a scream. And I look at this clock. I have this Batman clock on the wall and it's about 3.18 a.m. And then I hear two loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. And between those thuds, I hear my father muttering. I recognize his voice. And then I count 12 footsteps as they walk down the hallway. And I always slept with my door open. And in the doorway, I can see out of my peripheral vision, the two feet stop in my doorway. Hey, it's Matt Cox, and I'm here with Collier Landry. And uh, Collier has an interesting story. In, in fact, I remember watching a documentary on the story on this related subject. So as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, wow, I, I, I looked into it. I was like, oh, wow, I need to talk to this guy. Like, this is super interesting. And I watched some videos. And so anyway, check this out. I was watching one of your first, I, you know, we were contacted. Then I watched, started watching one of your videos and I was kind of like, that sounds familiar. And then I went and, and as, as you were telling the story, I remembered and I remember telling my girlfriend as we were watching, I was like, oh my God, I remember watching this. Yeah. Like, 20 like before I even went to prison I think I watched or maybe it was when I was in prison I watched one of those you know one of the documentary type shows uh I don't think I watched the whole I don't think I'd watched an entire like a two-hour documentary I want to say it was one of those one hour no, you probably watched forensic files that yeah yeah okay like I think everybody else has yeah yeah um yeah. So, and then I got to the part, I, I watched one of the shows where you actually had confronted your father. Um, and I never, you know, I, I don't know what ended up happening with that. We were, we were like, we were doing like four or five different things at the same time. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to interview this guy. I've got to interview this guy. So that's my documentary. That's a murder oh. in Mansfield that I made when oh, I confront okay. him. Forensic files is how a lot of people know me mostly because I was this kid that was involved in this massive murder trial. And I was like the center of it, all of it, right? And that's how a lot of people know me. And then I, in my process, which we're going to get into all this, but I had made a film called A Murder in Mansfield because I did all of these things to try to find out why my father murdered my mother. Right. <laughs> and it culminates in this, uh, you know, sort of scene, which is like right over my shoulder here, doot, 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 of me confronting my father in prison. So, okay. So let's, let's start at the, the beginning. You were, you know, <clears throat> obviously you were born. Um, I was born. I was yeah. I was born start the very, in, start the very in, beginning. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Bryn Mawr Hospital in on February 28th, 1978. And I uh m all my family was from, from Philadelphia mainline area. And I grew up, I guess, like, you know, like every other kid i guess i thought i had a really normal life i think when we're when we're young we're um you know we don't we obviously don't realize what adulting problems are or the situation that we're necessarily in so my family right when i was born we moved from uh philadelphia to pensacola florida for about six months my father was in the navy and then we moved to dahlgren virginia when i was like one year old 
And I lived on a naval base where I grew up for the next four years uh, in Dahlgren, Virginia. And my father was a, was a doctor. My father was a doctor on that naval base. You know, I just, I, I grew up, I thought I just had like a normal life, normal kid. And it wasn't really until, you know, airplanes landing in the backyard and going to the Chesapeake Bay and, you know, going to preschool. And that was my sort of thing. And I had like, you know, I was talking about this the other day with somebody. I, I was just filming with Vice and we were getting into like my backstory. And I was like, you know, I, I, I do remember like good times with my parents around then. You know, I remember really thinking that I was really in a happy family and my, and my dad and, you know, being home more and things like that. And it wasn't really until we moved to Mansfield, Ohio, which is where I grew up uh, the rest of my life, that things started to change. And when we moved to Mansfield, my father had uh, taken a job as a president of a hospital there and, or not a president, but like he was like, whatever, he was running the hospital right. and he was a doctor, he was an osteopath. He went to Penn and uh, as did my mother. Uh, and the thing is, is that um, that was a place where we didn't know anyone. Right. And you know, like I said, all my family is from, you know, Philadelphia. So we were this sort of city folk, if you will, that is Mansfield is a, is now it's, it's grown, but at that time it was a very small town and it's in the Midwest. And it's uh, you know, it's, they're not used to having people like our, like, like we were right. City folk in the country. So it was a lot for my mother to sort of relate to and my father, but one of the things that, and this is, I think that you, something you could really understand is, and this is unbeknownst to me at the time, but it was an opportunity for my parents in a place where no one knew who we were to create a life and to sort of have a little bit of a revisionist history in their lives. Or, you know, just, just sort of create a new character, if you will. And so I think that the persona that both of my parents projected was they came from good, wealthy families in in Philadelphia and, you know, obviously we're Ivy League educated, but they they sort of created this facade. And part of that facade was that we were a happy family. And I grew up spending 95% of the time with my mother. I was her constant companion. Um and, and I just kind of thought that was normal. And my father, who was a doctor, was always, quote, working. And so I started to realize as, as we moved to Mansfield, I was five years old, six years old, seven years old. I started to realize that, like, my father was around less and less. Like, he wasn't home for family meals or he would just sort of disappear at night. I would often find him sleeping on the couch late at night or if I was if I came up in the morning, he was he was gone or he was watching up watching CNN, Larry King in the middle of the night. And I remember just sort of going, eh, I don't, something, something's off, off here, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's just me. <clears throat> you didn't, you didn't hear them. They weren't arguing in front of you or anything. Like well, my, that. no. So my, my parents did argue and, and my father was a very violent person growing up. So my father had a massive proclivity for violence, but it didn't really start until I was around seven where he was violent with me and my mother, like overtly. Um, I'm sure he was manipulative to her. I'm sure they got in arguments and all these things. My father wasn't around a lot, you know, and he was quite, like I said, always working. And then I started noticing 
this change in the family dynamic. And I had kids that I was going to school with that were children of doctors that uh, were in single parent households. So their parents were divorced. And I didn't really quite understand how that worked, but I knew that it wasn't great. And um, I saw the pain that they were going through with the, with the sort of manipulation between both parents and whatnot, bouncing around on weekends. And, um, but I still was grateful for this, this family unit that I perceived that we had. And over the years, my family, my father was around less and less. And, but one of the things that we did do, we did two things together. We would go, I would go with him on his medical rounds to the hospitals and I would, he would see his patients and I would, um, I, I would like tap dance and sing and perform for the people to entertain them. Right. Because I was one of those artsy fartsy people. So we'd do that. And then we would go on ski trips and mostly it would be myself and my father. So I learned how to ski when I was like eight years old, we would go up and one of the things I remember if my mother didn't come with us, which often she didn't, she would stay in the la- lodge. If she did, she didn't personally ski. She did a couple of times. It wasn't really her thing. But I noticed that when I would go with my father, it would be a like just father and son trip to go up there. I noticed that oftentimes I'd wake up in the hotel room by myself or I would see my father talking to a woman. And like, I remember one time going to look for my father. I woke up and I put my clothes on and was like look, running, walking around the hotel looking for him. I found him in a bar, like at the, the, the ski lounge, the ski lodge lounge, talking to this woman. And I was like, huh, this is weird. But I didn't, I didn't really think anything of it. As I was getting older, so nine, 10 years old, I started to develop asthma. And it was pretty serious. And I was not an athletic kid. I, I was on steroids because of the asthma. I started you know, having a lot of problems. I couldn't like play in gym class like I could because it was exercise-induced asthma. And it was just really bad, right? Especially during the winter getting bronchitis a lot and things like that. But my father started getting really abusive towards me for not being athletic, calling me a stupid little fat boy. We would play catch in the yard and he'd try to like throw throw the, the baseball at my nuts and tell me I was a pussy, you know, things like that, abusive things. Um, and I noticed that things were getting more and more contentious between my parents. And there were situations where, my, so my father was apoplectic, right? And he would literally at the drop of a snap of a finger could just, he was a rageaholic, just, you know, everything would just hit the fan. I remember we were making breakfast on a Saturday and I dropped an egg on the floor and he just lost it. And he threatened to kill me. And then my mother begged for mercy and slammed the door and it shattered all the windows. Um, he, he was just, he was just that type of person. So I, I also grew up in this situation where Besides the trauma that happens later, I grew up in a very contentious household of like, you know, I had to tiptoe around, didn't want to set my dad off, right? And I never really understood why that, why he was that way. And he was very Jekyll and Hyde. So sometimes he'd be really, really nice. Right. So, or he would have these rage fits and then he would apologize as most, you know, as most abusers, manipulators, narcissists do. I just kind of thought that was normal, right? Right. No, I know. I, I, I like I understand. I mean, one being in a very similar household, and two, I was just thinking. I was I was uh, as you were saying it. I was thinking it's funny. Like you don't notice that's you don't know there's anything wrong. I I'm actually working on a story with my uh, my girlfriend, and we're 
And as we're kind of going through it and like everybody involved in the story is on drugs. Well, you know, when you're surrounded by water, you don't realize you're in water. You know what I mean? Like a fish doesn't know it's in water. So it's the same thing when all you, when your only reference is, you know, you've got a sweet mother and a father who's abusive, you kind of assume, well, that's how it is with everybody. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you don't, you realize how odd it is until you get into a normal situation and you go, wow, my family's fucked up. You know, but yep. sorry, so I know exactly what you're saying. You just don't see it. No, you don't at all. And it's a, um, it is a situation where you just, um, yeah, you just, you, you, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You, yeah. you don't know you're in water. When you're in water, you don't know you're in water. I love that. I'm going to use that, by the way. So I um, I kind of but still thought that I, I was grateful for my life, right? And my mother was just the kindest, most gentle, a beautiful woman, by the way, and just a, a kind person to everyone and just really taught me the foundation of kindness and also my parents didn't suffer fools. Like I was the kid who education was a very high priority in my household. And I was a kid who was, who would, school would end, would get to play with his friends, like get a week off from, from school, school, and then go back to summer school and take summer classes in science, art, math, whatever it was. Right. Right. And I loved to learn. So I was like into that. Right. And that's how I, I grew up. And and I think a lot of it was, it, I often wonder when I think back on things is maybe my mother was trying to put me in these things so I wouldn't see certain situations. So if I'm away with friends or at school and doing activities that I'm not seeing what lies beneath the surface of their relationship, which was my father was a was a manipulative, consistent womanizer and abuser. And... I ended up finding out much later in life that my father was having affairs on my mother before, even before they got married in 1968. And they had been together since they were in high school. He was like maybe 19. I think she was like 17 when they met and they had had a relationship like from the very early stages of their relationship. He was, he was a womanizer. He built some of the nation's largest banks out of an estimated $55 million because 50 million wasn't enough and 60 million seemed excessive. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crimes, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. Things really started to change when my grandparents started dying. So my mother's mother passed away in November of 1987. Her father, who was my pop-up, who I was probably closest to out of all my grandparents, was, uh, he passed away January 1988. And he had come to stay with us at the end of his life. And then my father's father passed away in May or June of 1988. And the only person left was, was my grandmother, who was my father's mother. Now, my father's mother had three children. My father... Uh, a middle child who was my aunt, obviously, and then a uh, younger son who was my, who's my uncle, who was my godfather, who was very close to my mother. And my mother was extremely close with her mother-in-law. 
like because she didn't really have a relationship, a very good relationship with her daughter. Her daughter was a little bit of a tomboy. My mother was a traditional, beautiful woman into fashion, into art, into like the high society type of things, you know, loved going to museums. And that was something she really shared in common with my, with my grandmother. Now, both of my family's backgrounds were poor working class people, you know, and, but in this town of Mansfield, they had sort of portrayed that they had different lives. You know, they came from wealthy families and relations, relations to, to famous people and things like that, which a lot of it was, was not true. My father also portrayed this persona that he was a naval war hero. <laughs> and my father would tell these stories to patients, to girlfriends, to people of like things like going. And I remember we were at this country club that we had joined in, in Catawba Island, which is northern part of the state of Ohio. And I remember we were at this dinner. My father was telling this whole story about how he was in his fighter jet in the South China Sea, and he had to eject because he got shot down. He ejected, and the ejection latch wouldn't work. So the plane went down in the South China Sea, and he had to take his trusty Bowie knife, military issue, and cut him his way out of the cockpit and then swim a couple miles to shore and get picked up by a search and rescue team days later. It's a great story. It's not true. <laughs> you look, yeah. yeah, it happened. But I grew up thinking that my dad, because he was look, was in the Navy, and I used to watch airplanes land in our backyard when we lived in Dahlgren. And I thought that my father had flown airplanes. And this is like around the time the Top Gun comes out. So like 1987, 86, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So my father was very into Top Gun. And I thought, oh, and he would tell me these stories, right? Because that was something my father was really proud of. And of course, when you're trying to relate to your father... I was like, oh, okay. And I, and I bought it, of course. And I remember his call sign, what he said was Bumper, which was my nickname growing up because when we lived on the naval base, I used to point to the nose cone of the, of the airplanes and call it a bumper. I used to say bumper. So he said his call sign was Bumper. And I remember him telling me, he's like, oh, they, fly, they, they found my, my helmet. I'm going to get my helmet. I remember asking my father for like years, did you get your helmet? You get your fighter helmet? Because I thought that would be cool to have, right? I could wear my dad's fighter helmet. It's obviously bullshit. My father even told people he flew for the Blue Angels, which is like the the Navy's color guard, right? <laughs> like the most elite elite fighter pilots in the world. And there are photographs of my father w that he would even have in his office of him with probably more medals on his jacket, on his officer's jacket, than the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the president. <laughs> I mean, it was just absurd. But again, I didn't know any of these things. Now, I do remember going to the Army Surplus Store with my father, where they sell those medals. And I do remember getting some for myself because I was a Green Beret one year for Halloween. I think the last Halloween I was in there, you know. Um, but it was, I, I grew up in this sort of facade. And, but I kind of didn't believe it. But really when things started to unravel was around my mother wanted to have, my mother wanted to adopt a baby from China, from Taiwan specifically, like a, like a two-year-old girl. And I was supposed to go over, this is February of 1989. I was supposed to go over with her to China and I got really, really sick the night, like a few days before, really bad asthma. And I didn't go because I probably would have died on the airplane. And my... 
I was left with my father. And I'd never been alone with my father for more than a brief period of time, right? Or with other people around. That was two weeks that I was with him. And it was absolute hell. He was so abusive to me. And I remember, so my father had a real proclivity for violence and he loved violent movies. And I remember he was watching Commando and I didn't really like watching those movies growing up. I didn't like to see people getting shot and murdered and things like that. So I would cover my eyes and he would call me a pussy, smack me, you know, could you uncover your eyes? You need to see this. This is war. I was in the Vietnam war, like all this crazy shit. My father was, let me be very clear. My father was in the Navy in the ROTC program. He never was a fighter pilot. He never saw combat. He was, yes, he was in the Navy around when the Vietnam war occurred. He never was in, in Vietnam. He never did any of these things. And he never left the United States, apparently. So, but he would tell me these stories. I mean, just, you know, and as a war hero, decorated war hero. And I'm just, but I, you know, I felt bad. And I believe that I was doing something wrong, right? So this time, very specifically, he would say to me, he, he was watching these movies. I was in playing a computer game on the computer and I'd unplugged the speakers to the computer. So I wouldn't disturb him. Literally, it was just like trying to be considerate of my father. He comes into the office where I'm playing the video game. It was like Math Blaster or something, if you remember that. And he, he says, why is, there no, why is there no sound coming through the computer? And I told him, I told him, why well, I unplugged the speakers? And he just lost it. He grabs the speaker wire and he and he shoves it in my face. He's like, I'm gonna fucking stick this in you. He sticks it in the back of the computer and he starts screaming at me. He starts taking books and computer games and throwing them at me off the shelf and screaming at the top of the lungs. Now, also, my father's six foot four, a good 225 pounds. He's a big dude, you know, and I'm a kid, an asthmatic little chubby kid. He starts ch- chasing me around the house, making me stop and salute him every time he said what are you? And I'd have to stop and salute him and say, a stupid little fat boy, sir, and run around and do all these chores. And he's just screaming at me. He's throwing things at me and he's whipping me with a belt. And he did that for a period of about two weeks. And I remember he, and then he, and then he would stop and then he would apologize and say it's okay daddy sorry and all this stuff like you know the master manipulator right is he drunk like is he no no so so okay so everybody says that so i want to be very clear my father never drank my father was not an alcoholic and as far as i knew didn't abuse drugs like i you know i i only saw my parents drink on very limited occasions my mother liked an amaretto sour i think my father maybe drink scotch but like they weren't drinkers you know alcohol wasn't something that i noticed in my house he went now his father was an alcoholic but he wasn't so he was just a rage-filled human and i i um so this was a time i was without my mother you know and then it's this apologizing back and forth right so finally my mother comes back and I'm now aware of like why she's never like let me be with my father for longer than certain periods of time. <laughs> and I thought, you know, okay, there's like some real issues here. So she comes back from China and then flash forward a few months later, it's Memorial Day weekend. 
1989. And I go with my father to this barbecue party. And we go like out the outskirts of Mansfield into the country country and go to this, these people's house and they're like racing quads and they're barbecuing and people are drinking beer and playing volleyball and stuff. And I had never seen anything like this as a kid because my mother was very preppy, very proper, as was my father. We didn't really like, no offense, but like we didn't quote associate with people like that. Like, you know, they're there and, and not that there's anything wrong with it. I had a blast by the way, like riding a quad. Um, but I'd never seen anything like that. Dirt bikes, all this. I, I wasn't aware that those things existed. I would, you know, I raced bikes when I was a kid. I was a BMX kid and all that stuff. Right. But like, I never, I never saw that. Right. And there was a woman there, a young woman. And I had met her. Her name was Sherry Campbell. And I, towards the end of the evening, I'm walking with her daughter, who's a couple of years younger than me. And we're walking around the lake and we're like skipping stones and all this. And I look back and my father has his arm around this woman. I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. And we're getting ready to leave. And he gives her a kiss on the cheek, which wasn't like necessarily totally out of character because my parents kind of did the, you know, thing that you do with, with, you know, friends and whatever. But I, I took note of it. And I asked my father on the ride back home, I said, who is that woman? And he explained to me that she was a patient and that um, she was terminally ill. And that he was there to comfort her in her health problems. And that's why he had his arm around her because he was consoling her. I was like, oh, that's, you know, horrible, you know. Um, I didn't really think anything of it. That was a satisfactory enough answer for me. On school, you know, school ends. And in June of 1989, it was Father's Day. And my father goes, takes me to his office and he says, um, or go to his office, we pick up some stuff and he stops to go get a suntan. You know, this is like the late eighties. So suntanning is in. And this woman, again, Sherry Campbell is at the suntan place, just happens to run into us. And she has two radio controlled cars and she, you know, says, Hey, happy father's day. I got these for you guys. And all this is like, Oh, yay. And I'm like, of course you give a kid a radio controlled car. You're his best friend. But I noticed something that's kind of odd. I see a ring on her finger that I recognize my mother was wearing at one point and it was a diamond slide ring. It was very unique. Like it wasn't a standard ring. And I said, Oh, my mommy has a ring like that. And she just kind of giggles. And she looks at my father. I don't pay it any mind. And as uh, we're getting ready to leave, I get in the car and I look up and my father is full on making out with this woman. And I had never seen that, that in, uh, other than movies. Right. I thought, Oh, okay. Something's up. And my father gets in the car. And so I ask him and he goes, I, I need you to tell your mother that I took you to the office and I gave you the radio control cars and, and not tell her about meeting Sherry or anything like that. I need you to do me that favor. And of course, I'm afraid of my father. So I don't want to say anything to him. But I know that something is seriously wrong with this. And I lie to my mother out of fear from my father. Right. So we go to dinner that night. And then in the middle of the night, I get very sick. And uh, obviously racked with guilt as a kid because I never lied to my mother. And the next day I'm playing with the radio control car. My father is not there. And I come in the porch. I'm just so overwhelmed with guilt. And I say, mommy, I need you to sit down. And I tell her, I said, I think daddy's having an affair. And How she looks at me. At this point? I was 11 years old. Oh, okay. 
And I say to her, this is uh, yeah, 1989. And I say to her, I said, I think daddy's having an affair. And I tell him her the whole story of meeting Sherry, meeting Sherry back in Memorial Day. Um, you know, she got the cars and, and how she had the ring and how they were making out and all this stuff. My mother said, thank you for telling me. She was, uh, she was upset that I had lied to her, but she was thankful and she understood why, I, why my, my father put me in that position and it wasn't fair to me. And she's grateful that I told her the truth. She goes in, she makes a phone call and it's a lot, a lot of screaming. <laughs> and that was when I, I realized that like, oh my God, like some of these other kids, I'm going to be a child of divorce. I don't have this particular, I, I don't have this perfect family that I thought I had. Despite my father's behavior and despite my father not being around all the time, I still thought I had a family unit intact. And I realized that that's not the case. So this is, like I said, end of June, 1989. And this is when things really started to unravel. So my parents start to engage. My mother files for divorce because unbeknownst to me at that time, my mother and father had a, had an understanding, which was my mother had said, you know, my father's name was John, but he went by Jack. She's like, Jack, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Don't involve our kid. The moment you involve our kid, that's the line in the sand. And he did. He involved me by introducing me to one of his girlfriends. And that was it for my mother. And she'd filed for divorce. And for the next several months, it was getting really ugly. And my father would like leave little notes in my bed saying, I love you, buddy. And everything will be okay. And daddy, like basically the victim, like mommy's doing this, but mommy will come to her senses type stuff that he was saying this. And I'm thinking to myself, I, like, I don't know what's going on, but like, it seems like you're at fault here, buddy. <laughs> um, and because I, my mother was my most important person to me. I spent, like I said, the majority of my time with her. But it kept getting uglier and uglier. And my father, I would, I, if any time when I would spend time with my father at this period, at this point, this is towards the end of 1989, we would randomly run into Sherry Campbell, and he'd be like, "Look who's here! It's Sherry." We're at a Kmart, and. And she just conveniently, we would just. I Sherry was sick. Yeah, exactly. Sherry was, was going to die. Yeah. I, I thought Sherry was. Oh, Ill. now she's, yeah. she's, she's definitely not terminally ill. No. Okay. And yeah. uh, because she's still around. Um, so that was a lie. And what happened is, is that, um, uh, yeah, we randomly run into her and he had, was like moved in with her or staying there. He wasn't at our house hardly at all. He would come back and get things and. It, it, things were just really, really ugly between my parents and my father gets nastier and nastier. And this is like, to, like around Thanksgiving of 1989, my father's telling me things like he's going to make sure because my, I believe my mother finally filed for divorce in, in November of that year, November, 1989 officially. And my father started telling me how he's going to make sure that I get yanked out of the school that I'm at and go to public school, like all the other quote, poor kids. And I'm going to, he's going to make sure that my mother and I don't have a house to live in, that, um, that uh, he, that uh, he's going to make sure that my mom is working at McDonald's and that I don't have enough clothes and that, and that we are, su we suffer. And that's how I'm going to grow up. And he's going to create a beautiful, wonderful life with Sherry and her children and give them everything. This is what he's telling me as an 11 year old child. And I started noticing my mother's demeanor was really beaten down because 
unbeknownst to me also was the fact that my father is a doctor, but the whole reason that my father is a doctor is my mother, who graduated uh, from the University of Pennsylvania School of Dentistry and got her dental hygienist degree, was working in Philadelphia in the 60s and 70s, earning $25 an hour to put my father through medical school. And my mother ran all of his books and, and took care of all the accounting for my father's practice because my father went into private practice after he left the hospital because he was asked to leave because of his womanizing and because he had so many complaints against him, which I, of course I didn't know any of this as a child. So my father starts telling me all these horrific things. So my mother is driving me after picking me up to school. We're going from school. We're going to a restaurant called Bob Evans to eat. And she says to me, as we're driving down the road, she says, Collier, I want you to know something. I would never leave you. And I was like, well, of course not, mommy. I know that. And she goes, if I ever do, I want you to know that your father probably had me killed. And I was like, well, how is that, mommy? And she said, she starts going into this fact that, you know, so my father's Italian. And she said, you know, your father has mafia connections and, you, you know, your 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 father just has ways to to dispose of me. Well, I mean, who knows if that's even true? Yeah. Based on all the other, like, you know, who knows what he's telling her? Exactly. And, you know, my mother did know, you know, my mother did, I ended up finding out eventually, like my mother did know her family, my father's family. And there wasn't these connections, like at least not that way. But there was, she was just in fear of her life. And I had kind of seen that at that moment, like, okay, something's up. So the holidays are here. And it's just not a great holiday. You know, Christmas, my father isn't around. Like he's with his new family, buying them all kinds of presents and stuff like that. And it's just a whole thing, right? And my grandmother, who's my, again, my my father's mother, was supposed to come stay with us for Christmas and have a wonderful holiday. She doesn't come for Christmas. She instead comes from new, for New Year's. And she arrives on New Year's Eve or uh, December 30th, 1989. And what's interesting is my mother, when they were arriving, she saw my father drive down the driveway. We could see my grandmother was in the car. And she said to her best friend who she was on the phone with, well, Jack's here with his mother. So he got, I guess he can't kill me tonight. And the irony of all this is that my mother used to say things like famous last words. My mother had a very sardonic sense of humor. Right. So, you know, she used to say like famous last words, but famous last words. So I, my grandmother arrives we have dinner, whatever. My father leaves and my grandmother and my mom are sitting in the, in the living room. And I, you know, I give everybody a kiss goodnight. I give her a hug. Night, mommy. Next thing I know, it's, I'm startled awake by hearing a scream. And I look at this clock. I have this Batman clock on the wall and it's about 3.18 a.m. And then I hear two loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. And between those thuds, I hear my father muttering. I recognize his voice. And then I count 12 footsteps as they walk down the hallway. And I always slept with my door open. And in the doorway, I can see out of my peripheral vision, the two feet stop in my doorway. And something's telling me, don't look up. 
because I firmly believe that if I had at that point in time, there's no, it's nothing to make the hole a little bigger and say she left with the kid. Yeah. Cause that's actually probably more plausible. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And the footsteps go away. I somehow go back to sleep. I wake up a few hours later. I jump out of bed. I run straight to my mother's room and there's a bunch of sheets that are off the bed. It's in disarray and I'm looking for blood stains. I'm looking for anything I can find. I come downstairs and my father is sitting on the couch watching CNN with a towel wrapped around his waist. I said to him, where is my mother? And he doesn't respond right away. So I said to him again, I said, where is my mother? And he looks at me and he goes, well, Collier, mommy took a little vacation. And I knew at that moment it was game one, motherfucker. Like you fucking killed her. But I don't really want to believe it, but I'm like, this is what's happened. So my grandmother comes in and my father says to me, um, my father says, okay, so we're not going to contact the police. We're not going to contact the FBI. And I thought that was really bizarre when he said the FBI. Cause I'm like, what? like we're in Ohio, like at the FBI. Um, and he goes into this whole story of explaining that the thuds that I heard was my mother throwing her purse at him and that she had come downstairs and attacked him and started screaming at him over the divorce, over money and threw her purse at him, threw all her credit cards at him, left the house, walked down the driveway in the dead of winter with no coat and got into a car that was waiting for her at the end of the driveway and left. Uber? <laughs> yeah, 1989. Yeah. She she pulled up her iPhone and got in the Uber. That, that whole story doesn't make in, in a town where I don't know very many people, um, in the middle of the night without my credit cards, without anything, without a yeah. Without a coat. Yeah. And left <laughs> left her left her personal vehicle there. Left her personal vehicle there, left her just left her children there, didn't grab the kids, just left. Right. And so that's already very fishy. Right. And I know my father's lying, right? Because I because what once the once he involved me with the sherry with the with the mistress, I started realizing that my, all the shit that my father had told me my entire life was all bullshit. Like my father's a liar. And I was like, okay, so this is the type of person I'm dealing with. So I was I became even closer to my mother during this time, between when I discovered that he's a womanizer and has this relationship to when she goes missing. So our bond only gets stronger because now I believe my mother. I, I believe and I see the pain that my mother's going through in this whole divorce and separation and divorce. And I'm just like, this guy's a horrible fucking human being. My father's a real, I've already didn't really care for my father to begin with. And now I'm like, you're a fucking asshole. And now my mother's gone and now you're feeding me this bullshit. So my father leaves and my grandmother who's there and she's bought the whole story and she's like, okay, you're not going to call anybody. You're not going to tell anybody because he don't want us to tell anybody. I'm like, yeah, that's fucking ridiculous. So my mother had just bought sense. a, huh? It doesn't make sense. Like you're going to try and track her down at the very of, least. Of, of, of course. <laughs> and what I, what I do is I grab, my mother had just bought a cordless phone. I grab this cordless phone. I go upstairs and I had saved all my mother's phone, friends, phone numbers and I had hidden them in a Garfield that I had in my room. I grab that list. I go into the bathroom. I lock the door. And I start calling everyone. I tell them what happened. I tell them I can't call the police. I told my father I wouldn't call the police. Call the police. 
Right. So a black and white shows up at the house a few hours later and two, you know, uniform officers come in and my grandmother is just livid with me say, screaming at me saying, your father does that not to call the police. Why did you call the police? I was like, I didn't call the police because I didn't call the police. And they're coming around, but my grandmother is literally helicoptering. She is hovering over everything. She's telling them to get out, get out of the house. You don't have a right to talk to this kid, blah, blah, blah. And I'm trying to like explain to them, like my mother would never leave me. Like, like something has happened to her. This is the bedroom. They're just kind of looking around or whatever. Turns into a missing persons report. So I follow up the next day with my mother's friends and they say, this is this missing persons case. You know, we, we filed a report. I'm like, well, this is not like she is missing. Yes, but she, something has happened to her. She's dead or, or she's, right. you know, locked in a room somewhere. And, you know, and they all knew that my mother would never leave me because my mother did have friends in town, you know, other doctors, wives and stuff. We, we, I had friends growing up, but, but she didn't have a family here, you know, and, and the family was all back East and they were also very estranged, especially after my grandparents passed away, which I'll come to find out later why. But my, um, so the next day, so we, we have this, like it's new year's day by this time. And my father's girlfriend shows up and we have this whole, like, you know, pot roast or pork roast dinner. It was just terrible. But earlier in the day, what happened is the detective showed up and his name was Dave Messmore. Knocks on the door. My grandmother again is like, you can't come in. You can't do this. And he's like, well, I just want to, you know, have a word. Is the doctor here? No, he's not here. You, he'll come back later. He's like, well, you might if I just have a look around. He charms his way in. And I'm like, come on in, come on in. So my grandmother again loses it. And she goes to call my father on the phone. I grab him. I pull him aside and I say, give me your card. Like my mother would never leave me. Something's happened to, to her. Give me your card. I'll contact you. I'm going back to school. He gives me his business card. The next day I go to school, the first thing I do is I walk into the principal's office. I give her the card. I say, you need to call the Mansfield Police Department. You need to call this guy. You need to get him here. Dave Messmore comes down to my school and over a period of like two or three hours, I lay out the entire history of my mother and father and, and everything that happened from our whole, the whole situation and the girlfriend and all the details, meeting her, my father's abuse towards me, my mother, what happened on, what really happened on New Year's Day, on New, New Year's Eve and what I heard and everything. And I tell him, I said, I'm going to go home because my father won't be home. My grandmother will be dealing with my sister if he was adopted from Taiwan. I said, I'm going to go upstairs and pull the bookshelves out of the wall and look into our crawl space to see if I can find my mother's body. Or I'm going to start, I'm going to start uh, looking for clues. I'm going to find, see if I can find her one purse that she would never leave the house with. I'm going to see if I can find this. And I, and I just started laying out what my sort of plan was. And I think he was looking at me like I was fucking crazy. Like this is a, at the time I'm almost 12 years old, but I'm still 11. He's like this kid, but I was very, I was a very articulate child and, and growing up with parents that really valued education. Like I wasn't watching television and stupid shit. I was reading books and I would read my father's medical books for fun. And, and you know, our, our idea of going on a family vacation was to go see all these museums and everything. So education is a really high priority in my household. So I was a well-spoken little kid and I begin to gather evidence against my father. And over the course of the next 25 days, and today is a very, very key anniversary date, uh, January 25th for me. But over the next 25 days, 
I start gathering evidence and myself and Dave Messmore begin to put together and ultimately it leads to my father's arrest, which is on January 25th, 1990. But I start gathering evidence and, and some of the things that are happening is my father's coming home and he has all these marks and cuts on his hand. So I report that. He is really sore and he has me rub Ben Gay on his shoulders because he was so sore. And uh, he said from moving boxes in his new practice in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I'm, I'm just telling the detective everything as all this is transpiring over the next several weeks. But it wasn't until mid-January 1990, my father takes me to his office to go pick up some paperwork. And I'm watching my father like a hawk, you know, so I don't let him out of my sight, right? And every night, like during this time, his divorce attorney is over at the house. Dave Messmore keeps coming to the house with other and other officers do to want to talk to my father. He wants to question my father, but he refuses to talk to him. And I see Dave at the doorway and I, and I mind you, I'm talking to Dave behind my father's back at school, reporting on everything that's going on inside the house. And it's like, we have this like thing and he's pretending not to know me and I'm pretending not to know. It was really weird. It was crazy. But what happens is I go with my father to get these, this paperwork in his office. And on the drive back, we stop at a gas station, He walks in the gas station to, to purchase some stuff and, and pay for gas. And I'm watching him through the windshield. I start rummaging through his car. I open up the center console of, the, of his truck and I find two photographs right next to each other. One is of a house that I've never seen before. And the other one is of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. So it looks like a new fireplace. And I just kind of put two and two together. Like this is a new house. She's involved. This is... This is something significant. Next day I go to school and I tell Dave Messmore about this. Towards the end of January, so around January 21st, 1990, because I don't hear from Dave after telling him about this house for a couple of days. I notice my father's behavior is becoming, he's becoming more and more stressed at home. But we oddly, my father is not angry. My father has turned actually into this sort of very passive person in a lot of ways where I was watching, I was playing a video games. I got a Nintendo for Christmas that year it was a fighting game and he saw me playing and he goes, I didn't know this was a violent game. I wouldn't have bought it for you. And I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? Like you're Mr. Violence. You're Mr. You're, I cover my eyes when you're watching Commando and you're angry with me and I'm playing a, a beat em up double dragon game and this is what you're upset about. I was like, this is so bizarre. But my father comes to me, it's around January 21st, 1990, and he says, you know, Collier, I know it's been really hard on you, you know, with your mother leaving us. It was always, it was always with him over the course of this, this sort of investigation. It was everything that he would tell me was, oh, your mother left us, your mother left us, you know, hopefully she'll come back. We would pray at meals at night for her safety. I mean, it was wacky shit. And I said, uh, <laughs> I was like, Okay. And he said, well, I have a, I want to take you on a, on a, like, let's just do a father and son bonding trip. And I have a medical conference in Florida and I'll take you and we'll have a, just a father and son bonding trip and it'll be really great. And I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, man, every year we would go to Tampa, Clearwater beach, and we would go for medical conferences, but they were always in the spring. They weren't in the middle of January. 
end of January. They weren't right after Christmas because obviously these things are structured to like families can go on spring break and the kids can go bush gardens and whatever. And it's a fun trip, right? It's clear water. And I knew something was up and I, the next day I tell Dave Messmore, I call him up and I said, this is what's happening. And he realizes like, cause I tell him, I was like, I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not coming back from Florida. And he knew that. And as potentially the only key witness in a murder case, he was very concerned. Okay. So in the morning of January 24th, I get yanked out of my house. To, I, I wake up. What's that? Question? Oh yeah, of course. So, please, please interrupt so me. <laughs> is this a year later? No, this is no, this is, this is a few weeks later. A few weeks later. So it's yeah. been a year. Okay. No. This so this has been, like so my mother goes missing on December 31st, 1989. This is now like January 24th, 1990. Okay. I thought maybe because, you know, a lot of times uh, sure. homicide detectives or, or uh, cases, you know, they take forever. Of course. So, And which is very interesting because now that seems to be the process. But this was not the case with my father. So what had happened is, and like I was saying, my father's behavior was becoming, he was more and more passive. He wasn't getting aggressive, but he was very nervous. So I... um. I began to think, okay, you know, I, I tell Dave Messmore, you know, I've been telling Dave Messmore all this stuff. And then, so they yank me out of the house. Children's services comes in. They say, we're from, you know, child services. You need, you have 20 minutes to pack a bag and get your stuff. And so I start packing my clothes and I say, okay, what about my dog? And they said, we'll come back for your dog. I never saw my dog again. Yeah. I pack a bag for my sister. As I'm coming down the stairs is when I discover the entire house, and my grandmother's screaming at these people, the entire house is filled. It, 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 they're coming in with men and women in white coats, and they've got all kinds of contraptions with them. Like they're executing a search warrant in my house for my mother's body. And it was complete mayhem. I get taken to a friend's house, friend of the family's house, and I'm not going to school that day. I go... And I am approached by a, a social worker comes and I don't know what a social worker is, you know, a caseworker, but I know it's not a good thing. And she basically explains to me, I'm going to be staying here for a while. I won't be going back to my home for a while. <laughs> and they're kind of, they're looking for my father. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So that night, which is January 24th, 1990, I have what is literally the worst asthma attack of my life. And I, I'm pretty convinced that I'm going to die and I'm in a home. I don't have my medication. I don't have the stuff that I need to breathe. Really. I don't know how I made it through the night, but I did next morning. They take me to the hospital because I somehow stabilize. They take me to the hospital and I go to see a family friend uh, who's a doctor. And as I'm walking into the hospital, they, there, the lobby is filled with people and there's an honor box, you know, honor boxes where they have the newspapers. And I just, as we're walking towards it, I get kind of veered away from it and go into the room and the doctor's there. He gives me an injection for steroids. I get a breathing treatment and I'm like, okay, I can finally breathe. And this is uh, January 25th, 1990. And this is when, this is when they tell me, they say, call your, Lieutenant Messmore found your mother. And then there's like this eternal pause. And she was dead. 
And the first thing out of my mouth was that bastard. And then that's when the circus starts. So I have a question. Did you, I mean, did you, are you still, you're, you're still, you're 11. I'm 11, almost 12. So did you think, were you still holding out hope that maybe she was alive or you just kind of knew? I knew, but in that moment, man, like you, you have that, like you have this little like glint of hope in you that maybe what you really know to be true is really not true. Like they're going to say, Lieutenant Messer found your mom. She was, you know, uh, she was vacationing in the Bahamas. Uh, she was in Aruba. She was uh, shopping in Toronto and she, this and that. She was, you know, you kind of hope that it doesn't have the ending because nobody wants to think that their mother has been murdered right. and their mother has been murdered by their father. Right. So my father, they leave me out of this room. And of course I see the honor box, which is Boyle arrested for wife's murder. Wife found, you know, on the headlines. And um, this was January 25th, 1990. So 33 years ago. And I, uh, I'm just like, and I already knew that my life was altered. I was like, this is like, I've officially crossed the Rubicon now. Like my whole life is, is over as I know it, like completely over. And I just, um, it's really hard to explain or it's really hard to articulate the emotions that come through that. And I think, you know, and I think for you, maybe you can relate on a totally different level, but I think, you know, you, you were convicted for, you went to prison for 12 years, right? Yeah. Almost 13 years. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you obviously you committed a crime. You knew you were guilty. You talked. We talked about that, but you know there is a finality when somebody, like when the judge, you know, hands when the judge says your sentence, right? You're you're sentenced to however many you did twelve, thirteen, but maybe it was like twenty years, and you were out for good behavior or whatever it was, right? Right. But when you hear those things, like you officially know, like okay, it's no joke. This is like reality is set in. Like there's no coming back, right? I mean, I'm sure you've had that you had that experience. Right. Despite your guilt, like it still hits you like, oh, this is real. Like it puts a button on it, right? Right. So I feel like I mean, I didn't know exactly what was gonna unfold, but it was a circus. So I go into the foster care system temporarily. I'm staying with friends. Actually, I'm not even in the foster care system yet. I, I, I'm temporarily staying with friends. My mother's mother comes in town. Or my mother's, I'm sorry, my mother's sister, my Aunt Carol comes in town. They have a memorial service with my mother's friends. And I testify at the grand jury hearing to indict my father, tell them everything I know. And I help them secure his indictment for my mother's murder. Did then, you know? I'm sorry. Did you no, know any of the details at that point? Like, did you? I just knew. So I knew a few things because they started asking me questions about, have you ever seen a blue tarp right. on, around? And I said, yeah, it was on our porch. Anything else? Well, there was, you know, there was this green indoor outdoor, like AstroTurf carpeting that my dad had rolled up on the porch for months in 1989. 
you know, they started asking me, have you ever seen this? I was like, yeah, I saw this. Yeah, I saw indoor outdoor cropping. Now, I didn't know the details of what they had found, you know, but what had happened was, is while I'm having the worst asthma attack of my life the night before, uh, on January 24th, they are excavating my mother's body from underneath the basement floor of this house that I had found the photographs of that my father had purchased with his mistress, Sherry Campbell. And they dug up her body underneath the basement floor and it was covered with green AstroTurf. There was new bookshelves and they almost didn't discover it. They just happened to see a, a, a splatter of concrete on the wall that wasn't cleaned up. And then they knew that the floor had been excavated and they ripped everything up. And then that's how they dug her body up. And it was wrapped in a blue tarp, which I saw for months just sitting on our porch. So the charge was premeditated murder because my father had planned all of this for months. Right. He'd bought all this equipment, set it out. So this wasn't like a tarp that you had from for 10 years for painting one time. This yeah. was, he went out and started collecting, mm -hmm. bought the set house or. Yes. Had a whole. All of it. All of it. And so I testified at the grand jury and a couple of things happened. State's like, okay, we're going to go with somebody, right? My father's side of the family wants nothing to do with me because they feel very strongly that I'm the reason why my father's arrested. And they're under this, you know, spell of my father, who is a psychopath and a master manipulator and narcissist, that he's innocent. And now I have somehow involved police and dishonored the family. And I'm the bad guy at 11 years old. My mother's side of the family even though the body ends up in his mistress's basement. No, 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 it's not his mistress. It's his house that he bought with her. And she oh. forged, she wrote her name as, so her name is Sherry Campbell. She's not married to my father. My father's name is Dr. John Boyle. He's still married to my mother. She writes on the documents to purchase the house, Sherry Boyle. And then she puts an N period. So my mother's name was Noreen Schmid Boyle. So the initials line up NSB. Right. So if anybody ever checks, it looks like that. Right. Because nobody knew my mother, what my mother's middle name was really. So it's this whole thing. So everything was very calculated. And he even asked, and it comes out in trial later, he even asked the real estate agent about lowering the basement floor in this house, which was brand new, by the way, about lowering the basement floor. But it was at the lake level. So you can't really get underneath the floor too much because of the water level. You know, it'll fill with water. Right. Right. So, it ends up being this whole, it's a fiasco. So my father's side of the family wants nothing to do with me because they feel that I'm the whole reason that this is all transpired <laughs> and my father's innocent. My mother's side of the family, my godmother says to me verbatim, this is my mother's sister. We cannot take you in because you look like your father. Okay. So I was, there's a, bunch, there's a whole bunch of really, really logical people, involved very, very logical and rational people yeah. involved in this entire situation. And it's very, it's, it's a very peculiar situation to be in when you are the youngest person in this scenario, yet you are the adult. Right. And I'm just dumbfounded. I'm completely devastated that my family has nothing to do with me. And I go into the foster care system, which I don't know if anyone understands the foster care system in the United States or how it works, but it's fucking horrible. Um, despite the circumstances in there, it's just not, a, it's not great. 
And uh, I, I basically have to, while in foster care, come to terms with the fact that my father has murdered my mother. He's about to go to trial. I'm the key witness in this trial. And even though prosecutors said to me, well, you know, we don't need you to testify if you don't want to, you don't have to testify. I was like over my dead body because, you know, when it goes to trial, I'm 12 years old. So I, I turned 12 a month after all this happens, after they dig the body up and I'm in the foster care and all this stuff. Right. And I really, in the nadir of my life, have to somehow find the courage and the strength to go, okay, I'm going to do what's right. I've been doing what's right for the last several months for my mother, for my family. And I'm going to tell the world what I know and face this monster in court. And a lot of people were under the impression that the, that I was, it was like videotape testimony. Like you phone in. No, I was in the courtroom <laughs> And the videotape is because they were filming me in court for the news because the, the trial was televised live throughout the courtroom. And they actually had, it was such a circus that the courtrooms filled up every day. It was like the hottest ticket in town. And so they had to put television monitors out in the hallways of the courthouse so people could line up to watch the trial. And of this doctor, you know, who murdered his wife. And my father had a high-powered legal team and all these things. And, you know, for that time, right, there's no Johnny Cochran, but like for Mansfield, he had a high-powered legal team. And I just thought to myself, like, the thing is, is that you have two choices. You can tell, you, you can f do the difficult thing, which is tell the truth, face this monster. And, and, honor your mother and do what you know is right or you can do nothing. And I realize, and I, and I don't know how I realize this, but this is all a testament to my mother and how she, her upbringing and what she instilled in me. But I realized that if I didn't do any of this, there's going to be two things that were going to happen. One decades later, when I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Second thing is if my father it, it, you know, if my father somehow gets acquitted and I don't do anything, I'm not going to be able to live with myself. But also the scary reality is, is when you're testifying against your father and you have somebody who's, who has this type of behavior, if he gets acquitted, he's going to, yeah, he's, he, he, my life is over. My life is already over, but now my life is over again. <laughs> and it, and, and yeah. I'm going to be reliving this nightmare every single day of my life. Hey, remember when you tried to put me in prison for murdering your mom? Oh, by the way, I did it because there's no double jeopardy. You know, it could be, it could be something as simple as that. So I just, um, I mean, it's a really hard thing to face, but I did it. And I said, I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to go in there. And I testified for two days at trial against my father. And he is still incarcerated to this day. Right. Um, but you, you still have, how much time did he get? So he got 20 years for aggravated murder, which is premeditated murder in Ohio at that time. Um, and then a year and a half for abuse of a corpse. 
but he's on old law. So every time that he wants to be released, he has to go before the parole board and plea his case, and then they can give him more time. It's not like a 20 years and you're out type thing. What do you mean give him more time? You mean he goes to the parole board and they they don't let him out on parole? Exactly. And they keep him inside again. Okay. Nowadays, the system has changed from my understanding is where you if you're charged with a crime, they just give you a flat rate. <laughs> so, right. so it's a, you know, it's a <laughs> one size fits all. Okay, you committed this crime, then this is what you're going to. And on 20 years and one day, you're out, you know, and you're on probation, right? That doesn't, that wasn't occurring when he was, when he was sentenced. So he's still incarcerated, 79 so years old. When he goes in front of the parole board, what is, does he still say, oh, I'm innocent, shouldn't be here? Or does he say, I fucked up? I, you know, does he, what does he do? Well, like, well, so I had a relationship with my father for decades because, and I guess we can get into this, but from what I understand is, you know, he still is in denial of it or he's responsible for her death. Um, but finally, in my film, when I finally confront him, because I basically, I grew up in this town and I was known for this. And I did not want that. I didn't want anyone to know me for anything but who Collier is. And so I basically went off to music school for a few years, dropped out and moved to Los Angeles because I wanted to be, I wanted to tell this story. And I was either like, okay, I'll become a rock star, become famous and, and tell my story and change the world and help people. Or I'll become a filmmaker. I'll tell my story, change the world, help people. And that's what I right. ended up doing. I ended up becoming a filmmaker. And this whole process for me was trying to understand why my father murdered my mother. So in my film, A Murder in Mansfield, I confront my father for the first time. And I've had, you know, I had had a relationship with my father. I come to visit him in prison all the time and over the phone, phone calls. And, and, and I have 400 some letters and I read them on my podcast, moving past murder to expose like narcissism and gaslighting and things like that. Right. But uh, this was the first time I've ever put it to him. Like you murdered my mother and I want to know why. And he has this whole story of just that she came down the stairs and she confronted much like he told me in that morning, but he left out, but he now added the details of, he pushed her. She hit her head on a piece of furniture. And when he came back to her body, she wasn't breathing and he tried to give her CPR. <laughs> now, mind you, he didn't call 911 or anything like this. Right. But in the film, as I discover and as and through my process of healing, I, I end up reading the case file. I found out, I, I find out that the back of her skull was smashed in, most likely with a hammer. So, and my mother's principal cause of death was suffocation because when they found my mother's body, she had a plastic bag tied around, tied over her head. So my father had had hit her in the back of the skull and tied a plastic, like noosed her up with a plastic bag and she suffocated to death. Mm. And my, but my father denies this. And I, and I even ask him, I say, well, how did she get the plastic bag over her head? He's going, Oh, I put the plastic bag over her head. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. And he's like, oh, I put the plastic bag over her head because uh, I, I didn't want her to look at me. <laughs> I'm like, 
<laughs> like, oh yeah, you didn't <laughs> while you were murdering her? Of course you didn't. So there was all these really just strange things that he has in his defense. So I guess the first time he was up for parole was in 2010. And I had actually gone to the parole board and, and vouched for his release for two reasons. One is I wanted to curry favor with him because I wanted to tell this story. I'd always wanted to tell a story. And I knew that he wasn't getting out because there was a, li a, a laundry list of people that were going against him. And I had no means for him to come live with me in California. I could barely take care of myself. You know, he, he couldn't move in with me now. I couldn't, I, I don't have the ability to take care of someone else. And I just knew it wasn't possible. But I knew that it would curry favor with him because I wanted his participation to be able to tell the story. And so I would visit him in prison and I would uh, phone calls with him and stuff. And I had a very surface relationship with my father for 25, 26 years. I'm never really getting into the nitty gritty. When he did, when he was first up for parole, he did come to me. He did tell me that he was, quote, responsible for her death because his behavior led to my mother's murder because my father's always maintained as the one, you know, the one armed man or somebody else did it. Or, was, you know, he's got all these theories. Like when he was in prison for years later, he was getting everyone riled up with theories that she was in a Chinese baby smuggling ring and gold smuggling ring and pedophile ring and selling sex slaves and just like crazy, crazy shit, you know, QAnon type stuff, <laughs> you know, just so out there. And he's obviously grabbing for straws, but so I don't know in the parole files what he actually has really said, but his story has always been maintained of that he's quote responsible for her death, that he pushed her, that it was an accident. And that's been the whole thing. Now he didn't give that story a trial. He said she left. She got into a car and left. They got into the fight. She threw the purse out and the credit cards, no jacket gets down the driveway and leaves, which was of course is a lie, right? So, and there was really no circumstantial evidence as far as like fingerprints and blood in his car. As far as I know, I did recently realize, uh, um, find out that, th that he had rented a cold storage for her body and cause he had given his ID so he could store the body while he dug her grave in the house. Well, what about, I'm sorry. Um, what about the, uh, the girlfriend that signed for the house? I mean, she signed, she's. I mean, I know that's, you know, like identity kind of a, you know, she, she had to know something was odd that she's signing for her and, um, you know, like she was never questioned. What was her? Well, no, she was definitely questioned and she took the fifth of the trial and my father was going into business with her uncle who was a chiropractor, you know, they were going to do, um, disability medicine, which is like work, workman's comp and things like that. That's what they were going to do together. And he was like a sketchy character from what I understood. Um, but here's the thing is that she told me that she wrote Sherry Boyle because she thought they were going to get married. And he'd always told her that she was separated. He was separated from my mother and they were divorced and all this stuff. But when you're, you know, she was 27, 28 years old when all this happened. You know, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist and a manipulator, like, you know, it's very easy to run mental gymnastics around someone, especially someone like her. And, she she just believed it hook line and sinker and she said that he came in before the real estate agent came back in and he told her to put that n period initial in front and she didn't really understand why but she just did it 
And so she was always under this impression that my father, I, I mean, for a long time, I had to sort of reconcile with the fact, like, did she know about my mother's murder? Because I blamed her in a lot of ways because I was like, not that she caused my mother's murder and that she was a participant in it, but that she was, um, that she was guilty by association because my father was having this relationship with her. And that's why she was, that's why my mother was murdered in the first place, which isn't really true. Um, my father is a psychopath and she was also pregnant. So I have a half sister that was born 12 days before my father was arrested. And it's, you know, she was in a position and she thought like she had the whole world on her, at her doorstep. She's going to marry this doctor. She's going to live this amazing life. She's going to start a new life. She had already been through a series of marriages or in relationships that didn't work. She had two kids from those relationships or marriages and she's going to marry a doctor. It's like the fairy tale for somebody, you know, who's, you know, from the Midwest. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have this amazing life. Right. And you hit the jackpot. The sad thing is that my father was also hitting the jackpot. He had a girlfriend that was 20 years younger than him. He's having a new baby. He's got all this money. He's getting ready to make, somebody told me that my father was going to make $160,000 a year working 10 hours a week at this sort of consultation practice that he was doing in Erie, Pennsylvania. I mean, he had it made and there was no reason to murder my mother. And if anyone, it would have been flipped because my mother probably was the one who should have killed him because he was winning the divorce because he had all the money. He restricted her accounts and was controlling everything. But my father had supposedly told my mother, and this I believe came out in court, that he told my mother, you're coming to Erie with me one way or another. And my father wanted to have his cake and eat it too, like any good narcissist, psychopath, sociopath does. And one of the things that, uh, oh no, I lost my train of thought, but <laughs> but yeah, he was able to pull the wool over Sherry Campbell's eyes. I, again, it took me a long time to sort of reconcile this and go, okay, she's not, cause she's not guilty. She's guilty by association. Right. I, do I think that they helped plan my mother's murder? No. I think that my father is just so good at manipulating people and gaslight people that, I mean, he's a psychopath and all of this was just literally premeditated and carefully thought out. And that's the difference between like narcissism and psychopathy or sociopathy. Psychopathy right. is it has a plan and you're very calm and it's very executed. It's very methodical. Jeffrey Dahmer is a psychopath, people like that. Right. Um, and my father's the same way. Yeah. So I would say sociopaths, sociopaths get into a, get into a fight in a bar and they immediately get into an argument. And they immediately get into a fight. A psychopath just kind of says, oh, okay, goes to a, he gets in his car, drives to a gas station, fills up a thing of gas, goes to your house and burns it down with you and your family in it. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Both not good. Both not good. <laughs> One Both. has a plan though. But one has a plan that's very methodical and very well executed. And that was my father. Now, the fault for all these personality disorders is there also is a massive degree of hubris that is involved with these types of personalities. Like, mm -hmm. dumb cops will never figure this out. I can do whatever the fuck I want. You know what I mean? And that's what my father's attitude was. And ultimately, he got caught by an 11-year-old kid. Right. Because he was sloppy. And because I was determined. Because I knew what he did. 
and it uh yeah it's um it's fucking wild man when i talk about it and like i said today it's like been 33 years since i found out that she was murdered and and he was arrested and it was the trial essentially in my hometown i mean right. in richland county ohio it was just i can't imagine you know i think at the top of the conversation you and i were bantering and we were talking about you know, uh, crime. And you mentioned something like, oh, it takes years. Sometimes these things, and I think now if this is crime had been committed, you know, there'd be every YouTuber and every TikToker talking about it, much like they're talking about the Idaho four and, and this in a Walsh case and th- you know, the, whatever the case is of the moment. Right. And all these people speculating on forums and things. I think that that would have been, that would have been what was happening right now, you know, and all this content be floating out there and it'd probably be years before my father would be brought to trial. Right. And now, as you know, the system is all about plea bargains and things of that nature. That's how they get people, right? So who knows? And he would have probably had higher power lawyers that would have done it pro bono just for the clout of the case and this, that, and the other. So there's, you know, when I think about the timing of everything, it was a very swift justice that was dealt. My father was arrested January 25th. My father was convicted on on June 25th. So, you know, well, I've quite, so do you still speak with him? I haven't spoken to him since around 2020, around the pandemic, because his prison was the one that was taken over by uh, the National Guard in Ohio um, when the guards all got COVID. So it like made international news. And so I had communicated with him to make sure he was okay. Also, because my father and I share the same blood type. And I wanted, you know, that was when COVID was out and everybody's talking about blood types and things like that. I thought, okay, I'm asthmatic. Is he, is he sick? <laughs> right. And he was quarantined. He had COVID, but he had no symptoms. I was like, okay. Hopefully, um, I'm okay. Okay. But no, he's still incarcerated and fairly healthy for a 79 year old guy who's been eating shitty prison food for 33 years. Do you plan on? Um, do you plan on? Yeah, and I've been slowly like t- uh, contemplating, you know, reaching out to him uh, again. I mean, I have letters from him, recent letters. I had a stalker uh, that just. Well, I guess it would be almost a couple of years ago now, January, 2021, she was starting a pen pal relationship with him. And then she would send me her correspondence with him because I would ignore her. <laughs> right. So that was fun. Um, and out there. there are odd people out there for sure. Uh, but it has been, you know, I have spent my life trying to cope with all of this in a way that is healthy and a way that is positive and in a way that is, you know, can affect change in the world. You know, and I started a podcast last year and, um, you know, it's called moving past murder. And I, and I share my personal story and I talk about how these things relate to me. It's, you know, part true crime, part mental health. And I, you know, I share my father's letters from prison. I talk to people, I play, like I have all these taped interviews that my father did from prison like five years after he was convicted of like him spouting these conspiracy theories. And I have new ones that have just come to surface. I find letters. I find people that reach out to me and, you know, being abandoned by my whole family and having to grow up in foster care. And I was finally adopted after about a year. I was adopted by a really great family um, in the area and um, they were strangers pretty much. Um, But they had a very large family uh, of like brothers and sisters. So I had a lot of cousins And that was a unique experience. And it was really challenging growing up with them in a lot of ways because they took on a kid. I I don't think they quite realized what they were getting into, but they just wanted to help. And, um, you know, 
we couldn't go anywhere without people knowing who I was. So they had this relative anonymity and all of a sudden they adopt this kid and it's a whole other thing. And they, you know, so, so that was a rough go for them growing up, but we have an, a wonderful relationship now and we have for decades, you know, right. And they've been very supportive and, and very understanding. And even, you know, I remember my adoptive father, George would, I would get these letters from prison from my father and my, and he would break them down and my father would be like manipulating me. He would say things like, Oh, I really wish that I could have a filet of fish sandwich right now. I would give anything to have McDonald's. And he was like gaslighting me and trying to, or not gaslighting me, but trying to manipulate me to feel sorry for him because he's incarcerated. Cause he, my father was always constantly working on and probably still to this day would be working on trying to have me rescind my testimony. He tried for years and I even went as far as, my father had hired a, a lawyer a while he was incarcerated for an appeal and had uh, alleged all this new evidence that the body that was in the grave that they, that they pulled out from the grave was not my mother's. So I gave permission to have that body exhumed in, when I was like 16 years old, 17 years old, and gave DNA testing to, to further prove that it was her, just to give my father a benefit of the doubt. Just for my own peace of mind, I wanted to know, like, is this, is this real? And obviously it was her. Yeah. Um, and then as far as is, is coming to Los Angeles, becoming a filmmaker, because I was obsessed with telling the story and finding out at the core of it was to find out why my father murdered my mother and going as so far as enlisting a two-time Oscar winner to direct this project and then go getting into the prison. And that was years of my life. I spent going back to Ohio, seeing him in prison, getting to know the prison staff. They had a production facility in the prison where he's at now. And I would go into that facility. I would go into the actual prison and sit and teach them because they had a production facility. I would teach them how to use editing software and I would help them order cameras and show them how to shoot and show them how to do graphic design and teach inmates this. And then I would sit with my father with like not in the visitation room and just chat with him and then be teaching these people. And it was just to build this whole bond so I could get in there and be able to tell the story. It was really extraordinary to be able to do that and very cathartic. And even though, you know, confronting my father and asking him, why did you murder my mother? I ended up realizing that it was such a great discovery because even though people were like, well, you didn't get your answer. You didn't get your why. I'm like, yeah, but I, I did get the answer by telling me nothing. You tell me everything because he's a psychopath. And I think that if my father had told me why, if he had said, I murdered your mother because of X, Y, and Z, that would never be good enough because I'd have even more questions. This way I'm able to put it to bed in my mind and go, no, you're just, just, you realize when you're talking to somebody like that and you're, and this is who they are, that you realize that some people are just born evil. And my father's one of those people. Yeah. I was going to say, if he owned up to it completely, you know, then there would actually be some atonement or, or, you know, redemption there for him. And that's not who he is because the person that does this doesn't ever want that. Does that mean, you know what I'm saying? He's still no. trying even to his dying breath, you know, maybe when he realized, maybe when he realizes, yeah, I'm not getting out of this, maybe he does it, but I doubt it. But, you know, to that probably go to his grave saying, you know, the one armed man. 
Well, it was it was always like he, what he did say is uh, and then the, and then there's the story of the knife and that comes out halfway in me confronting him. She came at me with the knife. I didn't know what to do. I'm like with the knife. What the, I, I, I want the knife. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are we talking about here? The golden child? Um, I'm just like, oh, okay. So where did this come from? So there's all these stories. There's never going to be, you know, for him, there's never going to be, I murdered her because she was in the way of me starting a new life that I wanted. Or in order to take she, a chunk of my money, the money I was going to be making. But but she wasn't even winning the divorce. That's the thing is she wasn't going to take all this money. And even the police were like, she had more motive to kill him than he did her. He was going to get out of it and have money and a new family and a new life. My mother was the one who was going to suffer. I was going to be the one that was going to suffer. So she, you know, him committing this crime was not, um, it's not logical, but this is, we're not dealing with a logical person. And the fact that he just still has to have all these reasons and excuses just shows the psychopathy and everything behind me. Because at the core of this, he's a narcissist, he's a psychopath, and he's someone who it's their fault. It's what she did to me. She was going to divorce me. Y yeah, dude, you impregnated another woman <laughs> and you're going to go start a new, like, why would she be married to you? And we see this happen all the time, right? This is not something that's new that these people behave like this. And they say, well, you know, and, and him, his comment of you're going to come to Erie with me one way or another. She did. And my father ultimately wanted to be able to go down to that basement and look down and say, I fucking told you so bitch or whatever he was saying. You know, so, he wanted to know that she was right there beneath his feet. And that's a psychopath. Right. Um, so do you have a relationship with your um, stepsister? So my my half-sister was, half so, well, there's two, but oh, it's okay. totally fine. Um, my half-sister uh, and I had a relationship up until when I made the documentary. She was going to participate, and then she decided not to, and I had offered both her and her mother a chance to be a part of it, and she was actually going to be a part of it, and I think her mother convinced her. And this is, I mean, her, I don't think she did to not do it. But I wanted Sherry to be able to, to tell her side of the story. So people didn't look at her and go, Oh, well, you're at fault. And of course, giving people these opportunities, they don't take them. And then when something comes out, then they are looked at or they're excoriated for their behavior. And then they're like, well, I didn't do this. And it's like, well, yeah, this is in my, as my adopted parents told her, this is why Collier is trying to get you to participate. So you yeah. can tell your side of the story. So they chose not to do it. Then everybody's upset that, that, that people have an opinion about her. Well, guess what? You didn't tell your side of the story. And I gave you plenty of opportunity to do that. Exactly. I, listen, I had the same thing happen all the time. I contact people and they, and then, then, you know, no, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm, okay. Well then I'm, and I always explain to it. Then you realize that somebody else, most likely law enforcement will tell your side of the story. Well, they'll tell your story and they're probably not going to do it the same justice or tell it from your, you know, your perspective. Yeah. And then it comes out and they go, you made me sound this way or you this or say this or that wasn't true. And that, well, you had a great opportunity to clear all of that up, you know? So it's so funny too, because sometimes it's like, like sometimes it's even minor. Like when I would read articles about myself, I would get all bent out of shape and upset over minor details. And of course I, I was before I started writing. And now once I started writing, I was like, eh, 
that's not a big deal. Eh, that's not a big, that's pretty accurate. I probably wouldn't have said it that way, but yeah, you know, and everybody, so I look back now and I think it's about 95% accurate. And the few things they got wrong were stupid. My Audi wasn't, wasn't white. It was silver, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? It's just stupid. Like, like you don't know anything that sure. my Audi was silver. Like, eh, it's really not crucial. But. It, 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 what's, what's funny is so when you make a film about your life, right. And, and I wasn't really supposed to be in it. I was going to be part of it and I was going to be shooting it. And then we kind of called an audible at the last minute. And so, I'm like, I mean, I look terrible. Like I'm wearing like set clothes type thing, like, like a fat grip, you know what I mean? But I was, people were like, oh, what was the editing process? Like, and look, I work as a film editor and I edit content and I, you know, I make movies and shit like that. But I was like, I didn't want to be any part of that process because of course everything would come in vanity. So like what you were saying, like with the color of the audience, it was all vanity things. Like I was like, oh, I look fat here. I, I sound stupid here. Like, don't, don't put this in, but it's like, that doesn't serve the narrative of the story. Like, and no one gives a fuck what color your, your Audi is. No one gives a shit about the sweatshirt that I was wearing. What, right. they, what they give a shit about is the content and what we're talking about, which is amazing in a lot of ways. But yeah, it, you know, and, and sometimes these things can become a solipsistic endeavor. And I'm very grateful that that's not what this turned into because it's a very powerful, powerful documentary. And it's not even true crime. I mean, I'm so new to this world of true crime, you know, discovering all these people and, and seeing this whole sort of underbelly that exists. I mean, I was, like I said, I was just working with the company, you know, with Vice doing this. Well, and, where, where is the documentary? So you can, uh, so my, the documentary is actually on my Patreon, Okay. but I made it with investigation discovery. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Hulu, but, uh, and investigation discovery has it or discovery plus now. Um, but it's also on my Patreon. If people go to my Patreon, you can just subscribe and it's on there and you can get a whole bunch of other content. I've got like, you know, I've got letters from my father in prison. I do episodes of the podcast ad free and there's a player there. You can download all the episodes. I think I'm on every episode of 74. And, uh, there's a whole, um, yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a bunch of content on there to sort of, you know, shows my life and a lot more of the stuff that I'm doing. And, uh, but yeah, that's where they can find the documentary. So you, you just said you have the episodes on the, on Patreon, but you, do you have your episodes on your, your YouTube? Yeah. Episodes? So I have episodes on my YouTube and I do ad free ones on right, Patreon. Right. Uh, but yeah, so my you, you, everyone can find me at my website, which is callyourlandry.com. Uh, find me on TikTok, Instagram, wherever, at callyourlandry. Um, and you can join my Patreon through there. But everything is on my website, the podcast, because my podcast is called Moving Past Murder, which was something that I started as a continuation of what the documentary was, which was, you know, I made the documentary. I made that because I was very, very passionate about growing up that when we looked at cases, because I had from my own personal experience, you know, the bad guy goes to jail, the victim is dead, the state gets his restitution, the gavel hits and we say next, like what's next, right? Like next case, next case. And we never examine the consequences of violence, the consequences of communities on ancillary victims, friends of the victim, family members, of the perpetrator and what it's like. And, and also to expose like, this is what it's like to not only have your mother murdered, but having it done by your father. So you're both the son of the victim and the perpetrator. There's not a lot of people that are in this world that, that ha can experience that and talk about it. So I made the film to, 
to show that and to show what healing is like, but also I do that further in the podcast, moving past murder to show my process of going through all this. Like I said, it's part true crime, part mental health, you know, and it's, it's me exposing things that I go through and, and I do it on TikTok too, but the podcast is a way to really find me. How, what uh, on YouTube or just yeah, it's on YouTube, it's on Apple, Spotify, where right, you get right. podcasts from. Yeah. yeah. How often are you posting? So I do every a new episode every week. Okay. Every <clears throat> every Friday, new episode comes out of Moving Past Murder. Yeah. How... I have a new podcast. I'm uh I'm starting called Survivor Squad. Uh, we're just spending getting ready to release, which I host uh, co-host with Tara Newell from Dirty John. How um how how is it getting guests? Like um so I have a, a sort of mixture. I reach out to people or people come to me and they, they've seen the film. They've heard, they've watched the podcast. They've seen the story. And I, I have so many people. One of the things that is really, one of the things that is really powerful about um, making something and being so vulnerable is that that vulnerability and authenticity really resonates with people. And so I get messages out the woodwork of, people who have seen the film, who've listened to the podcast that it has resonated with. They've just said, thank you so much for telling your story because it has helped me so much in my own personal journey of healing because I never got justice or I'm a victim of sexual assault. A lot of, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of these people are victims of child sexual abuse that reach out to me because uh, they, they haven't healed from that trauma. <clears throat> you know, the, the adverse childhood effects, the ACE, ACEs as they call it. And they say to me, you know, watching you do this, first of all, they're, they're horrified by what, by what happened to me. And they're like, well, I, what I do, what has happened to me is pales in comparison to you. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's, it's not a try. It's not a contest, right? It's, it's like everyone's trauma affects them only uniquely. Like, no, like, yeah, my shit is so horrific. But like that's the exception, not the rule. That doesn't discount the the way that somebody's been through through their own trauma. But I'm so glad that it, the message helps them and helps them heal and get on that journey and feel reassured of that journey that they're on to heal themselves. Because that's a really powerful thing. And I know my mother would love that I was doing that for people. So it, yeah, it's been it's been a really amazing journey. But as far as guests, the, you know, the, just people reach out to me. They say I'd love to be on the program, and or I reach out to them, like like you. I reach out to them and I say, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast. You know, and I think people have interesting stories. And I like to, I you know, the, like I said, it's true crime, mental health. But I, I'm I'm trying to steer steer away from necessarily true crime as this you know not the salaciousness of it all. It's more of I want to talk to people who've been through extraordinary circumstances because we've all experienced trauma. We all have. If you were born before 2020, we have all experienced some sort of trauma with COVID, right? That's a traumatic event that the world experienced unless you live in a cave in Afghanistan or something like that. So there is a, there, we all have had to deal with certain tremendous circumstances in our life or extraordinary circumstances in our life and how to come through and build resilience. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, it's not what you've been through that defines you. And this is what I, I aim to show through all the work that I do is it's not what you've been through that defines you. It's what you take from that and what you do next 
that defines you. And some people can go through, you know, I had a psychologist tell me once she goes, you know, you're the outlier. If you were sitting under a bridge in East LA with a needle in your arm saying, fuck the world, no one would blame you. You have every right to do that, but you don't live that way. And, you know, there are people that can just literally take this up and they, they, they're, they're angry. They hate the world. This injustice happened to them. They, they've been through all this trauma. They bottle it up inside. They say, fuck the world. I'm just, this is, it's not fair. It's just, I'm just getting it. And they can be, they, they self-harm. They, 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 they harm others. They continue the cycle of abuse, not only on themselves, but others. Or you can take that and you can say this. I've been through this shit. And I'm not going to let this affect those around me negatively. I'm going to turn it into a positive. And look, I'm up here talking about this. I'm far from a perfect person. Absolutely. But I am someone who I feel can look themselves in the mirror every day and go, I've done the best I can. The best I could. Did the best I could when I was younger to honor my mother and carry that through my life and try to be positive. But I'm also yeah. a perpetual optimist, which I found out was a trait my mother had. So <laughs> it's it, it, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's it's definitely perspective. Yeah, life is going to use it as a crutch to fail for the rest of your life. No, yeah, but listen, so many people do. Yeah, so many people do. I mean, um, look what you're doing. You're you're literally taking something that is. I, I mean, granted, it was a something of your own creation, but still, you could also. Come, I mean, how how many people? come out of prison and reoffend. You know, recidivism is a real thing. Yeah. You know, and Massive. you and Especially you chose fraud. Yeah, exactly. Fraud, fraud is actually the highest recidivism rate. Higher than really? Yeah. Murder is the lowest. Yeah. Yeah, because if most of them get out and they they never reoffend. That you know, mm -hmm. it's usually it's very circumstantial and and you know, of course they're under the microscope the rest of their life and you know, so you know, very few people do, they actually get out and commit them or murder again. I mean, they're out there, but very seldom does that happen. Yeah. I'm talking about the people that get out. Yeah, know? of course. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, then drugs, then, you know, so it, get, it keeps going, but yeah, fraud's the worst. Interesting. You know, because especially because the people that commit fraud have such psychological problems. Like it, it, it is all just, it, it's narcissism and just straight arrogance and, it's so hard to know how to easily manipulate the system and then not do it because you're yeah. so desperate to prove how smart you are, you know, which is also why most people get caught. You know, it's, it's hard to just shut your mouth, like commit the crime, shut your mouth. Eh, it's not really so much about the money as it is about letting everybody know how smart I am. Interesting. You know? So then you get caught. Well, there you go. Stupid. <laughs> like, like the same thing that gave you the guts to pull it off is the same thing that is your detriment. Yeah. You know, which was definitely, you know, uh, my, you know, definitely my undoing was that I just allowed, you know, just shot my mouth off, allowed too many people to know what was going on and included too many people and was not, you know, nearly as careful. And, you know, it just kept just caught up with me and caught up with me and caught up with me, you know? And then of course, every time I got lucky and got away with it, I just became more brazen. I didn't get away with it because I was lucky. I got away with it because I was just that good. You know, like once again, like, oh, this is bad. This is bad. You just got lucky. Walk away. No, no. I'm just that good. Oh, okay. Okay. And yeah. You know, 
So I thought I was pretty clever right up until the judge said, yeah. You're not no, so clever, buddy. No. no, not that clever. Yep. My YouTube channel is uh, youtube.com forward slash call your Landry. My podcast is called Moving Past Murder. I post new episodes every Friday on YouTube and on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. I also create individual content for YouTube shorts and on my YouTube channel. I'm offering a membership soon. You can find all things Collier Landry at www.collierlandry.com. I have a large TikTok following as well. Find me on TikTok at Collier Landry. Everything is at Collier Landry. So um, check it out. And, and thanks for having me, man. I'm, yeah. I'm super stoked to talk to you too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. And if you like the video, do me a favor and, you know, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell, leave, uh, you know, leave stuff in the comments. And I'll respond. And uh, also, uh, I'm going to, we're going to leave uh, Collier's uh, YouTube links and all of his links in the description box. And I, I appreciate you guys watching. Thanks a lot. Join my Patreon. If you like these videos, it helps me more than you know. Uh, also, if I have, listen, I have, I've got multiple true crime books that are out there. By all means, check them out. They're on they're on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, and there's Audibles. And I really appreciate you guys watching. Thank you very much, and I will see you.